I'm pleased to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Joe Matthews. Joe Matthews is the co-author of California Crack Up, How Reform Broke the Golden State and How We Can Fix It, and the author of The People's Machine, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Rise of Blockbuster Democracy. He is Sokolo's California editor and is also a contributing writer for the Los Angeles Times and lead blogger at NBC's California site, Prop Zero. Please give a warm welcome to Joe Matthews. Thank you very much. I'm sort of surprised to be here. You know, I'm a, a resident of Los Angeles, very proud resident of Los Angeles. I spent my whole career in the media, so you, you can understand when my colleague said we're going to do an event on civility, my immediate response was to ask, what's that? Um, but um, I've been reading up. It's a very interesting con concept, and uh, we might think <laughs> about trying it. Um, Zocalo, we do, um, we look at a big question. Uh, is civility overrated, is tonight's question, from a variety of viewpoints. And we, and we have four people here from very different backgrounds, um, training, a, a pastor, a political scientist, an economist slash anthropologist, uh, uh, an, an artist who's a scholar of performance. And they've, um, they've traveled here from their homes and their workplaces, uh, three great American cities, Houston, Phoenix, San Diego. Um, and one even made a long journey over the water from an exotic foreign country, Berkeley. Um, now, um, civility has been an American obsession from our earliest times, and an early bestseller uh, about civility um, called The Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Company and Conversation um, included very important advice uh, to citizens and public officials such as, put not off your clothes in the presence of others, nor go out your chamber half-dressed. Um, the author also must have been a meek gentleman, for he advised that when you meet with one of greater quality than yourself, stop and retire, especially if it be at a door or any straight place, to give way for him to pass. Now, the author of this, of course, was uh, a revolutionary, George Washington. Um, but his first rule of civility is probably the closest we could come to agreed upon definition, um, and, and we'll use it tonight. Every action done in company ought to be with some sign of respect to those that are present. Um, and in the research on civility, there are a bunch of unknowns, a lot of disagreement. But again, that's a, a very salient definition. Um, but that defining this is not enough. You know, there's sort of a big question tonight, and that question is, you know, how important is civility to democracy, particularly American democracy? We've never been a particularly civil people, historians tell us. We've also been, been a great success as a country. Um, so we sense we need civility. Um, um, but, but, you know, what is its use? Is, is incivility a real problem for democracy? Is, is civility help to democracy? And if so, how? What are the causes and consequences of it? Um, so we've got four panels. I'll introduce them as I ask a question. I'm going to start um, to my immediate right with uh, Cassandra Danke, um, who's the co-founder of the Institute for Civility and Government based in Houston, Texas, um, and co-author of this very fine book, uh, Reclaiming Civility in the Public Square, uh, ten Rules That Work, which is a great improvement on the, what the father of our country did. It took him 110 rules. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and she's, um, uh, she's spoken all over the country, um, featured everywhere, and has and been very good at bringing um, people together for civil dialogue, particularly people of different political parties, um, you know, in work, this nonprofit that goes back to 1998, and even before that, a great work she did um, um, with... Uh, one of the regional governing bodies of the Presbyterian Church of the United States. And I was struck in your book, um, you know, you have these beautiful narratives um, 
about people behaving civilly, and a lot of them are people in Washington. Um, you know, they're, they're politicians, they're people who are sort of playing this political game. They're quite civil and good to each other. Mm -hmm. So they know how to do it, right? Even if they can't seem to get much done. They know so, how to do it. So, so what's the problem? Maybe it's, you know, if they know how to do it, they, can't, they don't do it, you know. Is this overrated? There's actually, uh, what we have found is that there's a hunger on the Hill for civility, uh, not just among the elected leaders, but among the staff. Um, they are starving for civility, and yet it seems to work against them in many ways, and so they find themselves caught between a rock and a hard place. Um, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> So tell me about the goal of your work. I mean, you've said, I've seen you quoted several times, talking about you're, you're, you're trying to develop a national movement mm -hmm. for civility. I guess I wonder, how do you do that? And, and also, you know, how do you know, I'm sorry, this is, it's a question I asked someone from Texas, you know, where's the end zone? How do you know that you've won and you can do the touchdown dance? I hope I discover that. Um, how do we do that? Let me back up just a little bit sure. to why we started. Um, as you mentioned, we used to do work back in the 1990s taking politically diverse groups to Washington, D.C. to um, learn a little bit about the citizens' role. And um, we had folks all the way from the left to the right to in between. They didn't care, but the cherry blossoms were in bloom, so I'll go along. And um, they chose five issues they cared about. We arranged briefings for them. They all got along great, sightseeing, enjoying meals, all those kinds of things, until they found out that they fundamentally disagreed on the issues, on specific bills, on not just general ideas, but specific pieces of legislation. And then they didn't get ugly, but the conversation stopped. It just stopped, and they didn't know even when they wanted to talk with one another, they didn't know how to do it. And that's when we became aware that within this country, we lack a basic skill set for how to stay present with one another in a respectful way when we fundamentally disagree. And so that's why we felt like we need to start a movement because the only way we're going to see change in Washington is if we communicate how important that change is. And in order to do that, you have to have numbers. And what, and what do you think you get if you get more civility? What, 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 what should we see? I think we'll see more creative problem solving because people will hear ideas that right now they're not listening to. Um, I think that you'll have a more collegial sort of um, air on the hill that will lend itself to cooperation. Not, now, we are not the Institute for Consensus in Government. It's not that we just want everybody to agree all the time, and we're not going to agree all the time. I mean, that's a given. But instead of looking at a problem and saying, well, it has to be this way or it has to be that way, if you get in a conversation, you might find there's a third or a fourth or a fifth or a sixth that doesn't trample over everybody. Do you, do you feel like you're at work against the whole you know, culture? I mean, it's, I, I mean, I ask this, I mean, you know, we have such a tradition of this country, the ideal of, of speaking out, speaking truth to power. I, I couldn't resist, given your, you know, you, I was going to ask the question of a Presbyterian pastor. You know, speaking Isaiah, chapter 58, verse 1. God's instructions are, cry with full throat, without restraint. Raise your voice like a ram's horn. That sounds very American to me. 
I think it does too, and I think that's exactly what we're doing. We're emphasizing how important civility is, and saying that this is a, has to be a piece of who we are. Because if we cannot talk with one another in a civil way, then we can't accomplish anything else. And I think this past year is a pretty good indication of that. Um, so I feel like I am speaking truth to power, and I don't feel like I'm working against a culture. I think I'm on the leading wave of what's to come. Okay. I want to oh, thank you. I want to bring in um, Henry Brady, who's the dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy uh, at UC Berkeley. He's also the class of 1941 Monroe Deutsch, professor of political science and public policy. He's published more than 80 articles and books on all number of subjects. Worked in, in Washington at the OMB, I believe, and um, and he's got a new book out with uh, um, his uh, longtime collaborators, Kay uh, Schlotzman and Sidney Verba. The Unheavenly Chorus, Unequal Political Voice and the Broken Promise of American Democracy. Um, so let me do the Tim Russert thing to you and, and you know, put the quote up on the wall here. Um, you know, you, you write, you've, you've written, uh, in fact, in, in an email exchange where you said, um, you know, civility is essential to, to compromise democracy um, and that civility is a product of polarization politically. Um, but in your book, you write, um, for the rank and file in both parties, Ideological polarization has increased much more substantially among those in the highest income quintile than among those lower down on the income ladder, especially those in the bottom quintile. So isn't this just a rich people's problem? Well, it's everybody's problem because those rich people have, as our book shows, perhaps a lot of influence on American politics, especially as money becomes more and more important in American politics. And so it becomes everybody's problem. But the root of the problem, it seems to me, going back to what you were saying, Cassandra, is we've got to not only talk to one another, we've got to not only going to listen to one another, we've got to realize that compromise is not a dirty word. And one of the real problematic things about American politics right now is people like Grover Norquist who basically say compromise is a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's what politics is about. Uh, it doesn't mean that we don't stand up for our principles, but we just ultimately have to realize that we live in a civil society, a civil society together, and that means compromise has got to be essential for us to get things done. And we seem to have lost sight of that. But is, are, are civility and, and polarization, I mean, really linked? Is there, oh, research, yeah. is there research that shows that? Yeah, no, no, I think there's no question about it. I think what we've got now is we've gone from a situation where we had a really nice era of good feeling after World War II through the 50s. Now, that was broken in the 60s with the Vietnam War, without a doubt. But it got especially bad in the 70s and 80s as the impacts of the civil rights movement, uh, changes in Southern politics, uh, led basically to the rise of a whole lot of new issues, social issues. The trouble with social issues is that abortion is a really tough issue, and it's sort of hard to have a middle position. The Supreme Court decision, actually Roe versus Wade, actually does have a middle position, uh, but that makes people crazy because it's not either pro-choice or pro-life, it's somewhere in the middle. Um, and so those kinds of issues are really hard issues for people, it's easy to go to your corner and say, no, I'm pro-life or I'm pro-choice, and that's the only way to be. Uh, but that, of course, leads to a lack of compromise. And those issues have become very important in American politics. And then, by the way, too, what's happened is increasingly taxes, taxing has become a moral issue, and somehow that's thought to be a bad thing or spending's a bad thing, so it's all moralized. Is, here's the question. Is, is it, 
I mean, is it between the two parties where we have incivility? Because, I mean, I, I'm not a San Franciscan. I look at San Francisco politics from afar and wonder, what the heck? Uh, but, you know, you would, on the spectrum to an outsider, San Francisco politics looks like a very narrow ideological spectrum, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yet they seem to fight as, as bitterly as anybody else here right. in this town politically. I mean, you know, is it, is it more than just the, the sort of the, the two parties, you know, getting further away from each other and especially the elites of those parties well, getting further away? Well, let's talk a little bit about what's really going on. In America right now, we know that in public opinion polls, first of all, that actually the American public is not more divided than it was 30 or 40 years ago. What's happened is we've had a sorting into parties. So there used to be liberal or at least moderate Republicans. There used to be conservative or uh, Democrats. There's just not those folks anymore around in either of the two parties. And so this sorting has led to the parties becoming quite rambunctious with respect to one another, fighting a lot, uh, going to their respective corners. And that's what I think we're seeing in American politics. Now, that's the nature of politics, is there's always a little bit of polarization. It's people mm -hmm. taking different points of view. But it also has to have underlying it, ultimately, a sense that compromise is important. And that's what I think we've really lost. And also a sense that, gosh, you might learn from talking to somebody who has a different perspective than you do. I feel lucky in my job because I constantly can talk to people of all sorts of opinions, and I'm amazed at what I learned from talking to people who have much different political views than I do. And just a, one quick follow-up. Um, you know, there is a lot of research that, that says that this polarization um, has a positive effect on something that a lot of people worry about, too, which is civic engagement. Right. Um, so is it not... A good thing? I mean, is there a way to sort of, to kind of take the measure, do the, the you know, does the, the boost we get from greater civic engagement from polarization outweigh, or what point does it outweigh whatever damage to civility from that polarization? Well, it's, it's not clear to, that it actually does give a boost. It certainly animates people. Anger is something that animates people, but it also, especially given the negativity in American politics, by the way, we're in the midst of that. We're sort of lucky. We're not a battleground state, so we're not seeing all these ads where each side goes at one another. But that sort of stuff makes people uh, unhappy about politics and turns them off and often drives them away from the polls. So it's not clear that actually this kind of polarization and incivility actually leads to more political participation. I think it probably attenuates it uh, on balance. Okay. Thank you. Um, I, I want to bring in um, uh, Minakshi Chakraverti, who's the founding director of Public Conversations West. Um, she's been with, uh, that's a branch of the uh, San Diego of the Public Conversations Project, where she's been for 11 years. Um, she's done, you know, incredibly important conversations on in, in child welfare, youth. Um, she's initiated conversations on the, the San Diego, Tijuana binational region. Um, she's taught. Um, at, at universities all over the country. Uh, before entering this field, she worked in economic development, both with org multilateral organizations at the grassroots level in India. Um, she's a doctorate in social anthropology from Cornell University. You've seen a lot of different things in a lot of different contexts. Um, so let me ask you this question as someone who engages on all kinds of issues. Is, can civility be a way, at least conversation about civility, of avoiding a difficult subject? Does it always sort of get us to a deeper conversation, get us to democratic governance? Well, I think, um, Joe, uh, you hit, you hit on, on, on um, the reason why my answer to the question for this evening is both yes and no. So your question for the evening, is civility overrated? 
um, I, I found myself saying, well, no, because incivility actually has a lot of dangers and risks and, and adverse effects. And, and, um, but yes, because civility, when we just use that one word, civility, it's often read and heard in a very simple, even simplistic way. So when you ask, can civility mean avoidance? I think for a lot of people, the worry is, um, uh, is precisely that civility means avoidance. It, just, it means just politeness. And I think, um, for example, you, you mentioned that quotation from Isaiah, um, the raise your voice, and I heard that, and I didn't think that that call was a call for uh, incivility. I don't think raising your voice and expressing your passion is necessarily uncivil. And I think by, by taking civility and using a very, um, a very narrow, domesticated understanding of it can often suggest that what you're talking about is merely politeness and merely avoidance. I think the most significant dialogues, like um, Henry was saying, are those in which people really do listen and listen to hard things. So one of the pieces of work that the Public Conversations Project did was with pro-life and pro-choice leaders. Um, and those were not polite conversations, or not merely polite conversations, they were very civil conversations. This was after, this was not, I mean, the context here, this was in the Boston area in the mid-1990s after John Salvi went and, and essentially shot people in a Planned Parenthood clinic, right? That's right, right. that's right. And it shocked both the pro-life and the pro-choice communities. The, most of the pro-choice um, uh, movement or movements felt this was not uh, an act that represented them, and uh, pro-choice people were afraid. Um, but they came together and um, had these very significant dialogues, did not compromise did not compromise, but they were talking about things that were very, very hard. This wasn't avoidance. They were talking about things like what pro-life people call partial birth abortion and what pro-choice people will call late-term abortion. Not an easy topic. Not something to easy to talk about at depth. So, so, so talking passionately, raising your voice, is not necessarily incivility. And civility is not necessarily avoidance. So. Are there some topics, I mean, you mentioned abortion as a very fraught topic, but I mean, there's some things that are so outrageous that a, a civil response is not the right one. I mean, can you be civil in, in when, when there is an unconstitutional war, or, you know, or torture, or gross violation of someone's freedom, or violence, or, you know, any of the number of the things the baby boomers keep heaping on us younger generations? I mean, are there some outrages so great? you know, that, you, that the civil response is not the appropriate response. Yeah, I think it again comes down to how you define the civil dis response. I would say certainly a strong response, a passionate response is completely warranted in many, many cases. Even protest, even loud voices is warranted. Where I would put the, the boundary for where civility becomes relevant to me, and I, I, I'll use the word incivility rather mm -hmm. than civility. When does it become dangerous? When it becomes incivility is when it does two things. I think where the two biggest risks are. Um, one is it obscures what the real issues are. And to give a very simple uh, example, when you call somebody in contemporary politics fascist, 
it obscures what the real critique is. Mm -hmm. It obscures it for your listener, because your listener doesn't necessarily know what criteria you're using. Your listener may pick or choose out of criteria the listener would use, um, may not be the same criteria you would use, or your listener may even just dismiss you as someone who clearly doesn't know what he or she, or what, what you, he, you're talking about, because you're calling someone who's clearly not a fascist, a fascist. So it obscures what the real point of critique is when you get uncivil. The other thing it does that I think is very dangerous is it triggers um, neuropsychological responses that often um, create a cycle. So when I get really angry, it will trigger you into responding with stress hormones, so flooding your brain. You're less likely to use your prefrontal cortex, which allows more integrated thinking. So you respond in a way that then triggers the same response back in me. And this goes back and forth. You also have mirror neurons, and I, I'm not an expert in neuroscience, but, <laughs> but in my work helpful, we've encountered this. Mm -hmm. But it really is something that neurologically itself creates um, responses and counter-responses that do not make for the most complex thinking mm. or for the most wise um, decision-making, the, the, the kinds of conversations that would be learning conversations. Interesting. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I want to um, bring in uh, Jennifer Lindy, who's a senior lecturer in the, the far right, um, my right, uh, senior lecturer at the Hugh Downs School of, Com of Human Communication in Arizona State University. I was the artistic director of the Empty, Empty Space Theater and associate director of the Initiative on Innovative Inquiry. And um, relevant particularly to our discussion tonight, um, she participated in the design and development of, of civil dialogue at ASU. Um, uh, which was originally designed by John Jeanette, who I believe is in our audience tonight. Um, and that's a, it's actually a very formal format of, of civil communication. It allows participants to discuss controversial topics. Um, it's a pedagogical tool in performance studies classes. And, um, and you've been facilitating these kind of events since 2004, both public and in, in the classroom. And I, um, you know, I wonder if you could, you know, first explain this to me. And, if, and mm -hmm. I mean, since it is your scholar performance, um, I mean, is this, I mean, civility is a performance, right? We're asking people to, to, to act a little bit mm -hmm. um, here. Um, so, I mean, is that, but is that, I mean, what's the nature of that? Is that all right. this is? Is this just about blocking and, and smiling <laughs> when someone yells at yeah. you? Yeah, well, it doesn't hurt, I guess. But I, I would be cautious to say that civility is a performance because I think it gets at the idea that civility can't just be about manners. Um, the way that we work with civility in civil dialogue is intended to generate knowledge, to produce something. So we feel that the point of the dialogue is civility, but what the outcome is, is that we don't just, you know, we're not necessarily compromising, but what are we going to come away from this with? So we, we've designed this format that has five seats and, uh, two people who have strong disagreement about a topic and then less disagreement. And then there's this interesting central chair, which I think might be, maybe gets at some of the ideas that we're talking about here. And in the center chair is a person who, we're, is, we put up a provocative statement. And that center chair is about, um, am, I, am I undecided or neutral about this statement? 
So if you want, to, and we hold dialogues about very controversial topics, and we don't shy away from even waterboarding. Uh, we, we'll talk about torture. We'll talk about, and obviously I'm from Arizona. We talk about immigration, and so we bring up very controversial topics, and. The volunteers that sit in this circle speak from their own experiences, their own feelings, their own emotions. But because the format, we're asking for civility, we're calling for civility, and because people have such different positions, that center chair becomes really interesting. So, so just I, I see a few puzzled looks in the audience. So, mm -hmm. if there were the five of us were the the actors in this, and and you were, you know, whatever the proposition was, you were. You know, very much in agreed, and I was on the other end, ultimately disagreed, and Inakshi was was somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then there would be a room. I mean, these these are right, these are volunteers who are, who, ha who, are, who are following something of a script, following civility principles in a structured conversation. Right. We 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 have rules of civility that we describe to the audience. So all of us would be an audience to a civil dialogue, and you would volunteer to take a chair. So you'd feel passion, and we encourage passion because if you want to sit in a chair that strongly disagrees with this provocative statement, you're going to be called upon to talk about that. So that becomes quite performative in in itself. But the the dialogue has a form format where we invite the audience eventually to become part of the conversation. And so nobody is left out and everybody is performing. And so at some point, it may be that uh, a lot of the dialogue has, has really generated um, support for this side, but then the audience comes in and it balances out. But it, what's really interesting about that middle chair is we've had people say at the end, they come back to being able to state where their position is at the end of the dialogue, and they say, um, I, think I'm, I think I'm over here. I think I understand, I have an opinion, I've gone. So, so it's generative in that people find out things about what they think as they're participating in the dialogue. And do you find that just the particulars of how you stage a thing can change the conversation? I mean, I, I think I read that you, you put the audience, is the audience in a semicircle essentially? Yeah, the audience is in a circle, so you'd be a little flat for my taste right now. Yeah, it's a little authoritarian. Yeah, a little flat, right? Yeah. So, the, so <laughs> the audience circles around, and then the, it's very important that the five of us be looking at one another. Why? And again, it's that. Why? It's, it's, that's again about performance. It's about how we come to understand through speech. We, we are, civil dialogue is housed in a communication department. We believe that as we speak, we come to know. And then as we look, and our bodies in proximity to one another make us more responsible for what we say. Huh. And I'm going to look into your eyes. And we, we encourage people to not engage in fake listening, you know, that listening where you're just thinking about what I want to say next, but to really look at you and listen. And, and for the eight years we've done these dialogues, people have come away saying, you know, I don't, I've not changed what I think, but I understand what you think. And that's huge. Okay, well, I apologize for not rearranging the chairs, but my Zuccolo <laughs> colleagues would say something uncivil you, to me. Um, <laughs> Um, there was, I found a study um, from a, a five-year-old study from a, a researcher at the University of Pennsylvania where they showed, um, uh, they sort of staged four different um, exchanges, like a political exchange, and, and in, in one version of each exchange they were civil, it was supposed to be civil, and the other was uncivil, and they showed it to people, but they showed it from different camera angles, hmm. and they found that, um, you know, no one, uh, if you had a close-up, of the person being uncivil, that the, the people watching this found their argument illegitimate. Mm -hmm. But if you did it at a sort of a, a much more distant camera range, 
No, not, not, not so much of a problem. Do you, mm-hmm. do you buy does that? Does that make sense to you? That the closer you are, the more yeah, you Yeah, the feel... close-up face was more of a turn-off when the person was being sure, uncivil. Sure, well, I'm sure non-verbally. I mean, if, if you're going to be next to me and expressing emotion or anger, I'm going to feel it, I think, more strongly. And remember that we're also talking about physical bodies. It's very important to us with civil dialogue. We, we choose small spaces and small groups because we feel that's more productive. So we're going to sit in a very close area and being able to see you, feel you, feel your emotion. We had a dialogue about immigration where a young woman who uh, is undocumented broke down and her body was part of the dialogue and she began to be very emotional. And it had a very interesting effect, I think, on the entire audience, on the members of the participants in the dialogue because they felt it. So sure, I think proximity is is huge. So there's a... So actors would know this, right? I mean, I come from a city, there are 120,000 Screen Actors Guild members, 100,000 of them didn't work last year. Mm-hmm. Could we put them to work? You know, <laughs> reduce the unemployment rate, teaching civility? Maybe. Sure, sure, <laughs> send them over to Phoenix, yeah. Okay. Um, well, thank you. Um, um, I wanted to, to follow up and kind of mix it up here amongst the group. And um, a, a question, start with Cassandra on this, but also feel free to jump in. Um, you know, in some of the more recent conversation about civility, certainly post the, the Gabrielle Giffords, the shooting of Gabrielle Giffords and uh, Congresswoman in, in Tucson, it, it, you know, there seems to be that civility, has civility gotten a partisan cast to it as an issue? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some of the research, you know, the academic research suggests that, you know, academics are very straightforward. Liberals are twice as likely to, like, compromise solutions as conservatives, you know? Uh, I saw a rhetoric study. Conservatives use outrage language more than liberals. I mean, is there a... Does civility have a partisan problem? It, it's interesting because um, when we started, civility hardly was discussed um, at all. In fact, people wondered why we were starting the Institute. Most people saw it as a non-issue. Um, then it grew into something that people were discussing. There was quite a conversation on the Hill and in other places. It's only recently that we've started having this uh, conversation about is it more this party, is it more that party, who's guilty, who's not. Um, And it's been, I mean, last two years, it's been very, very interesting to watch. From my experience, there's um, plenty of guilt all over the place. And uh, I hear people on the left, I hear people on the right, I hear people in between, and I just say we all have a part of it. And so that's where I leave it. But um, there are surveys where um, the Weber-Shanwick survey that just came out this year showed where Republicans think that Democrats are more responsible for the lack of civility. Democrats think Republicans are more responsible. It's so much easier to blame someone else. You know, no matter what the problem is, it's got to be their fault. So... I think that's part of what's. I think that's part of what's going on. But I think we're all a part of the problem, or the solution. It is, um, um, you know, Henry, on this on the same question of partisanship and and um, and polarization. Um, I mean, how do you? What's the? What do we know about what reverses polarization? If polarization produces civility, you know, how do we reverse it? I mean, we just tried an experiment in California. Um, we were going to have a new election system that, you know, would empower people in the middle, moderates and independents, top two primary, and we got, no one showed up. Lowest turnout of a presidential primary is through a state, only 6% of independents showed up to, 
to, get, to use their new powers. I, I think successes help that when people work together and see they can work together and solve problems, that helps. I think we have to think about structural changes in the, some of our government institutions, not necessarily real big ones. Like right now, I think it's a shame that you can uh, force a, a filibuster and actually go home. You don't have to stay in the pit of the Senate and complain uh, about the law that you're against and sort of do what you see in the old movies where somebody's filibustering and standing there and reading stuff and staying up all night and so forth. You can just go home and say, look, I'm not going to be there to vote for anything and therefore we're going to continue the filibuster. We should have a cost imposed on people who want to filibuster. If you want to stop discussion and compromise, then there's a cost imposed, and then all of us can watch on C-SPAN, at least some of us can watch on C-SPAN, um, <laughs> and we can, can watch and see what folks are doing to try to make their case as to why the filibuster is a good idea. And I think that might mean that we'd have less filibustering. Filibustering has increased by a factor of 10 since the 60s. We used to have 10, 15, now we have about 100 filibusters per Procession. We're, we're less violent. I, I, there's somebody who actually counts act, acts there's of legislative no violence in our history. 31 hostile confrontations, primarily on the floor of Congress, and 34 duels or challenges. Right. We don't do that so much right. anymore, though the South Carolinians sometimes, right? Right. Um, <laughs> there's no question there's less violence in the world. There's a lot of data on this, and there's mm -hmm. and probably a lot less violence in, in our society as well. But I think violence is a somewhat different kind of thing. We're talking about political civility and the willingness to compromise. And I, again, I think you have errors, errors like we have now, where polarizing issues come along. They're very tough issues. I think inequality is hurting. I think it's making for a real distinction between the two parties. Uh, that means each side has really something to worry about. Uh, the Republicans don't want to lose the tax breaks, which are helpful to them. The, the Democrats don't want to lose the spending from government, which is helpful to them. And therefore, you have tremendous polarization over those kinds of issues. Uh, and then, of course, there's the social issues I, I mentioned before. So those kinds of things cause uh, a failure to be able to be civil to one another and a failure to have compromise. Um, and and here's, here's a question, though, one of the answers to that kind of thing, and maybe you can actually want to take this, is, um, you know, that, that civility can be, you know, as a concept of elites. You know, our founding fathers saw themselves as civil people. George Washington wrote his 110 rules, and that can be, civility can be a tool, right, a weapon to sort of say, you know, these people with their new idea, their new way of talking is out of bounds. I mean, we, you know, I remember, you know, from my youth, you know, you had rappers talking about inner city problems, police violence, mm -hmm. before the rest of the world did. They were, the response was not to respond to the problem of police violence, the response was to try to put, you know, Tipper Gore putting ratings on rappers. I mean, how do you negotiate a civility that, you know, sort of leaves room for the, the person who doesn't have the sort of the elite vision of civility to contribute into the conversation? I, I think that's a, that's a huge question. I think it's a huge question. It's one that we face at, when, we, when we use dialogue. And there are critiques of dialogue as a, as, as a process that pacifies, so to speak. Um, and similarly, the idea of civility can be one that silences, particularly if you understand civility in a particular cultural format. So if civility means speaking as we do right now, in moderated voices, in full sentences, waiting till the other person finishes, not interrupting, we're going to silence a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So I think if... Um, if we don't want to have that silencing, the understanding of what civility is needs to expand and needs to be um, 
looked at more closely in, 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 in cultural formats, in cross-cultural formats. Um, and what does civility mean across those? And not simply cross-cultural where it's, um, say, um, a European-American and uh, um, a tribal community sitting together. Um, but also a cultural formats where very often what we, what we think of as, as homogenous, um, say, middle-class, educated American, mm -hmm. Republican, and Democrat. There's a, there's a lot of cultural difference there and a lot of language difference there. But because on the surface they look so similar, there are a lot of false friends, so to speak, mm -hmm. when you get together. And there again, a call for simply civility uh, is, is tricky and risks risks avoidance, risks uh, silencing. So I, I think it's a very, very important question. So, well, so should, what's the answer? Should the rule of thumb be that if you're going to be uncivil, you better have a really big and important point to make? If you're going to be uncivil, no. No, because then you're still calling that person uncivil. I, I think the... Mm -hmm. I think Which can be sort of an I insult, right? I mean, right. So let's not call people who are protesters, for example, uncivil necessarily. Exactly. Protesting can exactly. be a very civil procedure. Exactly. Sure, it can be. Yeah. You, you assemble, you have signs, you complain, you maybe make noise, but that's not necessarily incivility right. at all. That's the right to assemble. That's in our Constitution. Right. And... Right, but arg argument is not incivility. Right. I mean, I, I right. grew up in a country where we argue a lot. And um, for many Americans, Americans have tended, I, I didn't grow up, I'm now American, but, um, but uh, people who've grown up here have often said, Americans are the most argumentative. Well, you haven't seen South Asians argue then. <laughs> South Asians argue. But, but many of those arguments are not well, they even may sound uncivil. Some of it, there are ad hominem attacks, and yet there's a real engagement. Mm -hmm. And I think part of what, you use the word sort, the, you use it with reference to the, the political parties, but I think there's also been a cultural sorting that's followed a political sorting. People aren't used to talking across differences. I think you referred to that, Henry. Yeah. And so argument doesn't necessarily have to become uncivil with a capital U and a capital C or something like that. But so, yeah. so, yeah, so the rule of thumb is that you look at whether that, that conversation is um, working for the purposes of that conversation. Mm -hmm. I think that, that would probably be my, my rule of thumb. Really to think about what are the purposes of that conversation. Well, I mean, as a recovering newspaper reporter, when I was a news report, reporter, the problem with civility was that it was so gosh darn boring most of the time, right? So, I mean, to Jennifer, you know, I mean, you're the dramatist. Um, right, right. You know, right. I, mean, I mean, incivility is often more interesting. It's, it's often, it can oh, be news. I don't, I don't know. I think it's, How do you make I, civility interesting? I think civility is very interesting. I think it gets at the idea that we don't often ask people to come into a space and talk when they do not agree, right? So we need more ways for people. So, so we talk about, will we ever have our politicians in our two-party system able to speak to one another? I think that's less the issue. It's more the issue of, can we get people agreeing that it's, it's fruitful to talk when we don't agree with one another? And it is very dramatic because, like I said, bodies in a space, looking and talking and feeling and emoting can be very powerful for people to experience both as an audience and a participant. And when we do that, I think it's very dramatic, actually. 
Is, um, a question for all, but we've, we've got a limited time and I want to go to questions, so this is sort of the lightning round, so feel free to jump in with a, a, a short, pithy question, but, um, you, know, we, you know, this is a free society, but we have all kinds of sanctions and rules that, that control speech, even in public forums, and we have a long you know, history, I mean, you know, there are rules of blasphemy, about you know, libel, defamation, fighting words, threats, words that incite lawlessness, you know, you can't, you can't be publicly nude in most places. There's broadcast indecency, rules against certain kinds of pornography. I mean, what, what rules don't we have? You know, the, all these sorts of rules. I mean, you gotta behave in court, too. I mean, what rules do we need that, we, that are not covered by these existing structures? Is there anything? Well, I don't know if it's a rule, but I wish we had a sense. I was lucky as a kid, I lived all over the country. I met all sorts of different people. And it's left me to an enduring interest in why people are different. And I wish we all had a little more interest in why does that person have that opinion that's so different than mine? Can I try to understand how they got to that? Because usually there's an interesting story there. You know, people aren't stupid. People don't have opinions for no reasons. They got great reasons for what they do. Anyone else on this question? I mean, what is there? Is there a regime? Is there a rule, a regulation that we need that we don't have? I, I would say that we don't need more rules. We need more skill. I think we need to learn how it is that you sit down and, and find out why you believe the things you do and, and how to really listen. I, I don't think the rules are what we need. It's the heart and the skills and the practice and the opportunities. Well, should another. the rule be curricular? Should that be, you know, in state-mandated curriculum, some sort of, you know? Well, there are more and more schools that are developing civility programs and, and looking at this as a part of their mandate that they need to help students learn into, live into civic responsibilities, not just by knowing the form of government, but by knowing how to interact with one another in a civil way. I'm seeing that all over the country. I, I was going to agree that I don't think the, the answer is rules, and I do think the answer is engaging. Mm -hmm. I think we need to be engaging more. And in fact, there's a young man here from an organization called Rebellious Truths that recently had a festival where they brought together young people uh, across the spectrum, and they had people talking, um, the Occupy people talking to uh, Tea Party people. And, and this is amazing. It's been started by a 25-year-old and a 60-year-old who hold fairly different political positions, but um, they're doing this. And people are coming together to have those conversations, to practice a little bit what it means to talk across those differences, and then not necessarily agree, and not even right. necessarily compromise, but to learn, right. to be curious. So right. I think rules, no. A new idea for an evening out. Go meet somebody completely different than you are. And it could be really interesting. And if you disagree with them, it's even better. Yeah. So it takes you to... I think that, Joe, I think we have... At ASU, we're starting a certificate in civil communication as part of our, as part of our department. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that my colleague, Clark Olson, uses civil dialogue in his argumentation class. And he had a student send him a letter recently that stated that... Uh, through attending civil dialogues with us, doing them in the in the coursework, he was better able to handle the disagreements he had in a women's studies class, both with the professor and other people in the class. And he said, I realized in that moment that I've come to understand how to listen to people who do not think the same way I do without having the type of you know, unproductive response I may have had otherwise. Okay. 
last question before we go to the audience questions. I mean, I mean, since there is room for, we want people from outside the, the, the elite concept of civility, um, I mean, how do you get to a balance? Do you have a way of thinking of a balance between the civil and the, the uncivil? I, I, you know, I, I've been thinking part of this thought, but, but you know, Gregory, who introduced us to me, uh, my boss, uh, you know, has been showing off a, a Durkheim book. He's, you know, mm. reading serious philosophy in the office. Mm. And um, there's a, a newer book, much newer book, uh, by Jonathan Haidt called The Righteous Mind, where he has this concept of, um, you know, humans are, uh, I think, takes this a little from Durkheim, humans are 90% chimp and 10% bee. Um, the chimp is the sort of individualistic, you know, wants to, you know, do what it wants to do, and the bee is the kind of the sociocentric you know, cooperative part of us and needs to serve a higher purpose. And, and the idea is if you allow too, you know, if we allow too much chimp, trust breaks down, order breaks down. But if you have too much B, you know, you get, uh, to use a word I shouldn't use, fascism, totalitarianism. I mean, where, where does the balance, how do you think about, you know, sort of a balance, a civil, a civil norm, but one that also allows room for, for, for outsiders? I think that's what functional democracy is, is that balance. And I, I don't think we, I, I'm a little suspicious of trying to socially engineer it. I am, um, and by that I mean the rules or the, you know, finding the exact balance and then what's the recipe to get to that balance. But I do think that the work that um, Jennifer's doing and that Cassandra's doing and that Henry is talking about and the learning that proceeds with that, what Public Conversations Project is doing, adds pieces, and then people will figure out the balance. We'll, we'll, I, so that, that would be my answer. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. And I was curious, what I'm not hearing much about is um, the prevalence of online discourse and yeah. what that means for civility in your work. So I was hearing a lot about the importance of face-to-face -face contact. Um, so I'd just be curious to hear your reactions. That anonymity. I think is, is troubling to many people because when you have that space where you can be, you can say what you want without somebody, you know, acknowledging who you are, I think that's, it's troubling. Um, I'm not sure I have an answer to it other than I think that, that more, you know, productive behavior in terms of learning what it means to be civil, maybe we can combat some of that. Hi, my name is Ellen Wheeler. I'm from the League of Women Voters of California. I was very taken with your five chairs idea, and then it seemed to bounce off into your uh, conversation with the uh, Tea Party gentleman and the Occupy person. I'm wondering if at least a good um, conclusion from that kind of work is not so much that people change their minds, yeah, but that they begin to respect the other. Mm -hmm. And I think that what then happens is they're more willing to compromise because they know it's not the end of the world if the other side gets their way. And that sometimes is where we're forced these days uh, with the notion that we're going to get something incredibly extreme if the other side wins. Well, that's just not true, especially in America. It may be true someplace. It's not true in this country. I almost find that politics in America is kind of boring next to, I guess, I like England, their, their house of commons. I mean, you, you got both sides, and one guy jumps up and he gives his fact, and, the, and everybody behind him, yeah! And then on the other side, <laughs> the opposition jumps up and they have their counter. And, and, uh, and I think, the, uh, historically, the lectern between the two parties, it was two sword lengths. 
so one guy couldn't slice the guy on the other. <laughs> uh, but anyway, you, you said something about Southeast Asia, and, I, and I'm wondering if, you know, if there's a, you know, international sort of cultural difference uh, you know, from one nation to the next, or are, are we all just center, uh, centered on America? I think there definitely are international differences, and I think uh, from what I've understood, I haven't really followed how the parliamentary debates go in India, but the little bit I've, I've heard and seen once in a while, it's not terribly civil all the time. But, um, but I think what does make a difference, and this is a thought that just came to me, is the politicians could behave badly, and sometimes they do, and, and yes, they actually get more than just the yeah. But, um, but in, in, in families and communities there, you live together, again, you live together with people that you dramatically disagree with. They're part of your extended family, they're part of your community, and you live with that. So even though the politicians are, um, are fighting, you continue to have engagement that I have found a little less in the U.S. recently. I, I think people tend to, to, to hang out. So that, that's sort of going back to an old point. I want, I want to follow up on his question because, I mean, you know, people, you, you can see, I think, sometimes on C-SPAN, question time, the, uh, the prime minister takes and they, and they scream and yell and carry on. It's not a very civil conversation. It's personal, bitter, there are insults, um, uh, ad hominem attacks, both mm -hmm. for and against the prime minister, but there seems to be a sort of conflict and resolution. Issues get out. I mean, isn't that kind of what democracies... Um, uh, supposed to sort of be about? Is, is civility, again, again a silencer in some ways? If we... well, I, I like the fact that in those situations you have people trying to actually at least focus by and large on problems and they're trying to come up with uh, facts and information about those problems and often policy solutions. So maybe the language gets a little inflated sometimes, but at least it's talking about problems. I would love, for example, to see a situation where maybe the president more often went to Congress and uh, had that kind of interaction with members of Congress on C-SPAN. That would be, I think, very useful for America to see that kind of dialogue. Right, and Joe, in, in our yeah. dialogues, we talk specifically to audiences about, about passion, passion being very important, but it doesn't mean you demonize other. So I can feel passion, and that may be for many people. I like the idea that we don't limit how people express passion, but it doesn't mean that the, you, know, you don't get to be passionate as well. And one of the things we do is bring together two members of Congress, one Republican and one Democrat, together on university campuses to discuss issues, to discuss problems side by side, and they're able to do that with passion and with civility. They're not, and, and it is productive, and it's very interesting <laughs> when, it, when it happens. I wonder if you might take a, take a view, a historical view. After all, our nation has survived 225, 235 years, and we've had a civil war, and uh, actually we go back to the election of 1800, the election between uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson <clears throat> was equally as bitter, even more bitter than perhaps what we're seeing today, and, and yet we've survived all this. So maybe this is a matter of a pendulum, and it, uh, maybe this will swing back. Well, yes, and, and Jefferson, for example, famously called uh, Adams a blind, toothless hermaphrodite, <laughs> uh, not all of which was true. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> and so, yeah, we've had periods of tremendous uh, incivility and uh, polarization in America. So we're not in a period which is actually that polarized even by American standards. We just have come out of an era uh, in the 50s and mm. 60s where actually there was a lot of civility after World War II. And that's one way, by the way, you get more civility as you go through a, a circumstance like that where you work together to solve a problem. I want to follow up on that because, you know, there's all this frustration. We, we, we can't talk to each other, so we can't get anything done. Conventional mm -hmm. wisdom often stated today. But, I mean, my goodness, when you go back and look at, at you know, the period of the Civil War in, in the United States, we, we did some big things even though, when we were killing each other. I mean, the institution <laughs> where you work is the product of decisions Lincoln made right. uh, University of California in the Civil War, the Land Transcontinental Railroads. We, yeah. we, were fight, I mean, we were literally fighting, but we're able to do big things. What's different? I think somehow, the, well, that's a good question. I think the institutions now are a little more complicated at times and make it very hard to get anything through. I do remember that during the Civil War, there was certainly one party that controlled everything, so it wasn't like it was that hard to get legislation through. Right, you could suspend. The, the South had seceded, so a right. lot of the folks who were uh, <laughs> on the no other reason. side were not there to cause any trouble. <laughs> it was only after the Civil War with Reconstruction that we hit some really, really hard times and tremendous division in American politics. So that's one answer to your question. Uh, but I do think, again, it's partly the institutions that we have. Uh, I sometimes wonder if in America we've lost this thought that we can do anything and we have to find ways to say we can do anything. And asking each other to pay a price when we do try to do something big. One of the things I think was a shame about George W. Bush is when we went into Iraq, he didn't ask everybody to make sacrifice through, for example, tax hikes. And also, maybe I think the, the draft going away was a bad idea. I think if you're going to have wars, you should have to have everybody have a chance to be in the military. My question about sort of the evolution of media, specifically as it pertains to post-political careers, you have people who almost seem to be, it seems to be quite lucrative to be galvanizing and uh, polarizing, Name, you know, Sarah Palin, Karl Rove, these people are making substantial careers out of sort of, not Karl Rove, but flash in the pan political appearances. Do you think that, that works against this movement towards civility, at least within our political leaders? You were talking a minute ago about how it may not be that civility is performance, but incivility right. has a certain exactly. quality because I think that, that we have, we're, I think some of us are drawn to that. It seems like something, you know, it's not how I'm supposed to behave because I've been taught politeness, but look what they're doing. And so we are kind of privately, and maybe that lends itself to the um, incivility that happens in anonymous places as well, because that's when we act out maybe something that we kind of privately admire. It's certainly true that some of the debates on cable channels look like wrestling matches. Yeah. They, have, they just have that quality about yeah. them. But is there, Food is, fights. Is yeah. there a connection between affluence and incivility? I mean, if the, if the most polarized people, the, the people who are moving the furthest away in each party is your book uh, documents, you know, it's the, it's the rich Democrats and the really the richest Republicans and the most, or the most engaged, the most polarized. I mean, isn't, is this a... Is this another problem of affluence, like, you know, obesity? I, or well, I don't know like if it's that? affluence per se, but I think there is a problem with money becoming so important in American politics, because what that means is when you, you are giving time to politics, and so not money, but time, you're really engaged and involved, and you have to sort of 
talk with people and go out and maybe try to recruit people to your point of view. When you just give money, you just give money to somebody and then that somebody's going to use it in a way to do the best they can to get elected. And unfortunately, that does lead to the Karl Roves and the other political operatives coming in and using the money to say, well, what can we do to really win here? Well, maybe by just vilifying the opponent. Mm -hmm. So I would like to see a politics less based on money and more based upon personal involvement in politics where you actually have to encounter people one-on-one. -on -one. You have to knock on a door and talk to somebody. But, but I mean, you, for those who do this, the civility work, I mean, why are these rich people so nasty? And why do they want to fund such nasty things and such nasty messages? How do we reach them? Well, I, I don't know that it's all just the wealthy who are being rude. Um, but I would say that it's that it does capture our attention when there's a real performance, as you say, of incivility. And I think that works against us as a nation because so many people are turned off by it. They may see it, but I believe we're losing some of our best and our brightest because they don't want to be involved in that sort of thing. They don't want to subject their families to that sort of thing. So every time I find someone who's willing to run for office, my first statement is thank you because you're willing to put yourself out there in this mess that we've got. And... Um, I know, I'm not willing to do that. I, I don't want to listen to that all the time. I've gone up to public officials that I don't even know, but they're, for example, the mayor of a town or something, and I've said, thank you. I've had them break into tears because they've said nobody ever says thank you. And what does that say about us? I mean, what's at stake is our, our ability to govern, whether it's local or state or national. And we have to be willing to put ourselves out there. If, it's, if I'm going to be called a name every other day, I'm not really interested. Thank you very by much. By the way, young people are very turned off by that style of politics, and that's a problem for us, I think. It is a problem. My name's Ernie Ting, and I'm with the organization Smart Voter. Um, as a counterpoint to this notion that uh, people get attention and make a career out of incivility, I'm wondering if any of you have been involved in any kinds of initiatives to address what Joe was talking about, which is how you help media organizations make civility more interesting. Um, well, one of the things that the Public Conversations Project uh, is doing is working with elected officials. Um, uh, we're part of a training program where they get um, uh, exposed to a number of different skills that they need as elected officials, but one of the things is also how to engage across profound difference. Again, not necessarily mm -hmm. agreeing, not necessarily coming up right away with a compromise, but at least how to do it without necessarily falling into polarization. So one of the things that we've, we've been told and we've noticed is that people coming into public office often don't really have all the skills they need for public office. And, and that isn't because they're not accomplished people. They are very accomplished people, but not necessarily as public officials. Mm -hmm. And so that, and one piece of that is how to negotiate, how to dialogue, and so on. Several months ago, every, pretty much every state in the country all had an occupied protest everywhere. Um, and some states, particularly here in Oakland and in New York, you know, became a little bit more aggressive than others. Do you find that the ones like, let's say in Wisconsin, or even in um, New Orleans, or even in San Francisco, because they were a little bit more subdued, do you find it's because of the economics of those other cities that were a bit more aggressive, lack of education, resources? Where do you think um, 
the problem lies? That's a tough question. Yeah, I'm not sure I, I, yeah. I know the answer to that, and I, I, I haven't done a study comparatively across them, and sometimes it may be just that certain things went awry one way or another and made it look like it was much more contentious than it really was. Uh, so I'm not sure I even necessarily agree with the premise, and that's why right. I'm having some trouble right. with the question. Yeah, me too. But I am thinking about how um, my colleague, John Jeanette, who's here, who is the original um, architect of Civil Dialogue, our, the idea was that civil dialogue needed to be mobile. So we have a, a fairly contentious uh, political um, situation in Arizona, and so there's often protests at our capital. So we want to take it there, you know, take it to the Occupy movement, take it outside where you truly have people who disagree about something and, 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 and investment in that disagreement. So I'm not sure about your premise as well, but I think that the idea that there's this levels of passion in different cities has a lot to do with, uh, you know, who those people are, I guess. It, 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 just to follow up on that, I mean, there's so many barriers now to, to reach powerful people and, and even pose them a question. Don't you have to sort of raise your voice? I mean, I just know this in my profession, when you cover politics, there are more and more barriers between you as the reporter and the political, to get a presidential candidate, you gotta go, you gotta be great nuts. You gotta, you gotta go scream at questions, you gotta chase them, you gotta play cat and mouse. I mean, it is not, it is not for, it is, you know, you, you're, you can't do that job if you're gonna be meek and civil. You gotta be obnoxious um, just to get a question to somebody. Passionate. I mean, isn't there sort of a, I mean, isn't there a problem with sort of barrier if the, if the powerful people, the people in power are walled off I mean, you're gonna, you know, you gotta kind of climb the barricade to just so that they see you. Well, we've got to make sure that we continue to have ways that everybody can have a chance to talk with public officials and that public officials do engage everyday people. I worry again with more and more money in politics mm -hmm. that the folks who most politicians talk to are in fact very well off, probably quite civil people, uh, but not necessarily ordinary citizens, not carpet salesmen like my father. And I worry that as town hall meetings become more and more uncivil and those who are elected feel um, threatened and like the conversation is unproductive, that they are less likely to have those kind of opportunities for citizens to come together and have a conversation. Yeah. So yeah. Um, that's, you know, I, I agree. Yeah. We need to be able to come together and, and talk to one another, not based on how much money I'm giving you or what my title is, but just I'm a fellow citizen and this is my concern. Yeah, we're excited. We have monthly dialogues um, at my theater on the ASU campus and uh, we have had, we had a state senator wander in one day and he's become the biggest fan of civil dialogues. So now, and he's a conservative Republican and he brings in that voice and I've often felt, and we've told him this, we feel that's a very brave thing for him to do. He comes into that space and talks about bills that are not very popular um, in our legislature. So he comes in. Well, the conversation, what I learned here is that it stops because uh, uh, they cannot reach a compromise. And uh, our democracies, democracy is supposed to you know, fix that by you know, a Congress that, that works. Uh, a representatives that decide something and a Senate they're supposed to reach a compromise. But it's not functioning because we have a problem um, with the Congress have functioned right now, especially because of the filibusters. So with looking beyond civility, we could figure, 
we could fo the functional democracy will solve a lot of the problems. Uh, the presidency spam will help out as well. And uh, involvement, and not just money, involvement of the public, and not just money, will solve also part of the problem. But right now, I think uh, it's key that the, the cost of filibusters actually take place. Uh, that, will, that will make Congress to move a little bit better because it will have no choice, like it happened in many instances when you know, we, were in the civil, we were in war or we were in situations uh, when you have no choice, you have to reach a compromise. Just before, you know, just after the revolution, for instance. So I understood you as saying that you were calling for a rule that would make filibuster yes, more costly. Yes, exactly. Because the yes. cost on filibuster, I think it will be key. Well, I think we start. have to have rules, a bunch of rules like that. I mean, another set of things I would do is, right now it's very hard for presidential administrations to get their appointees actually appointed. Mm -hmm. Congress just basically waits and waits and waits and doesn't even hold hearings, and then often uh, never gets to really appointing somebody. We've got to have mechanisms say that, okay, the president appoints somebody, in 60 days that person gets the job if Congress hasn't acted. So more action-forcing kinds of mechanisms would be good ones. Uh, in Congress and uh, other governments in the United States. Anyone else on this sort of connection between governance and civility? So we wrap up. I, only, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go, go ahead. Only that as citizens get together and ask for civility, they'll get what they ask for, and that's what it's going to take. I was just going to say, not all rich people are uncivil. <laughs> and, That's good to know. And, and, it, and it's not like the other people are necessarily uncivil. It's just that the very rich people who are uncivil, that gets back to Henry's point, are the ones who have the most impact, can control the airwaves the most. Well, rich people are, are people, too. We should remember right. that. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and with that note, thank you very much. And thank please you. join thank me in you. thanking the panel.